Well, I'm glad to be able to ask you to open your Bibles this morning to the book of James, and we're going to be in chapter 1 this morning and a couple of other places in James as we get started in this series. And you can tell that I am going to title the series, Living Up to Your Faith. And why I have settled on that title will become apparent, hopefully, before our time is over this morning. But I'd like to begin by reading a very familiar portion of James's letter that I hope will serve as a good introduction for our time this morning. And it's in James chapter 1, all the way toward the end of the chapter to verse 22, where James says this, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man, literally a male, as opposed to a female. A lot of times you see the word man in Scripture, you're thinking, well, that's man and woman. And it is. It's anthropos, it's person. But here it's aner, it's male in particular. Who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. In other words, this male comes to the mirror, which in the first century was not a mirror as we might imagine it this morning, where you see your your true reflection very easily. In the ancient world, mirrors were made out of polished bronze uh, or, or, or stone, and they would polish it so smoothly you could see your reflection in it. By the first century, when James was written, the they had, had started using uh, glass to make mirrors, actually. But it was nothing like the mirror that we have today. So you would have to look at it like it says here in this verse, intently, in order to see anything that was worthy of comment. But in James's account, we have this male looking intently. It's, it's a verb that, that means he's acknowledging what he sees. And he has to look for a little bit in order to understand. But then he stops looking. And he goes away, and he doesn't give it another thought. So we have a little bit of gender identity going on here in James, Uh, perhaps a little bit of stereotyping. Men are typically less sensitive to things than women. They typically don't notice details as much as women do. And any of you wives are saying amen. You 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 know how your husbands are. Uh, Your husbands can get up and shower and be on their way in a hurry, whereas women typically take a little longer to care for themselves. There's a big difference between growing up in a house with only one bathroom and you have a bunch of boys, and then growing up in a house with one bathroom and you have a bunch of girls. There's a time factor involved there that would become very apparent as the children are growing up. And in the ancient world, it was no different. No different. I mean, I say this because of what we know about the way women would adorn themselves in ancient times. If they were really wealthy, they would fix their hair up into these elaborate braids and these, these hairdos, and they'd weave in, in uh, you know, jewelry and, and pearls and that kind of thing. Even in the rabbinic literature, I've read in, on, in, on, in more than one place in the, the ancient literature of the rabbis that before God presented 
Eve to Adam, he actually fixed up her hair <laughs> before she, he handed her off so that she would look more presentable. I don't know why, but that's what, uh, that's what they say. And, and so there's actually a verb in the Hebrew text that, that means to, to fix up or to build or to make, or to or, make uh, ornate. And it's used of Eve when God fashions her. And so they said, well, she, he probably fixed her hair too. And so this, this, this is a, a universal, timeless truth perhaps, that James is relying on when he says that a male looks at his image in a glass mirror, a cloudy mirror, and he forgets about it. He doesn't remember it. By contrast, look at verse 25, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, which he's referring to the Bible, we'll find out why later, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. It's a great way to put that. He will be blessed in his doing. So don't be a male when it comes to looking at God's word, going away and forgetting. Be more female. Look, persevere, act on what you see, make changes. This is the way to read and hear the Word of God. We're beginning today a journey through the letter of James. This little letter of eight verses is itself a mirror that God is asking us to gaze in. When we gaze into the Word of God, when we look intently, when we persevere, we see things in our lives. We see areas that need adjustment. This mirror will show us sin in our lives. This mirror will reveal to us ways that we can better please God. This mirror will show us ways that we are following God, but maybe for the wrong reasons. But it will never fail to show us areas in which we need to change, areas that we need to address, that we need to confess. When you read the word of God or hear it preached, does anything ever change in your life? It's a really good question. When you hear the word of God and read it preached, on, uh, hear it preached and, and, and you read it on a regular basis, do things change in your life? Do you say that needs to change and, and you begin by the grace of God to, to address that area? When is the last time that you read or heard something in the perfect law of liberty and God used that to change something in your life? You said yes to God. You confessed sin. You made an effort through the grace of God and the, the enabling work of the Holy Spirit to change. And this is my challenge to you as we're going through this letter. We're going to be reading the letter. We're going to be struggling to understand it. We're going to be encouraging one another to memorize the letter. I'm going to, I'm going to make this year about the, the book of James, especially on Sunday morning. I think there's a lot James can teach us. But all of this can pass us by as a wonderful little spiritual exercise that makes us feel like we did something to be more devoted to God. And yet we can do all of this with no change. James is warning us toward the beginning of the letter that there is more than one way to behold the word of God. But there's only one way that is blessed by God. One way that will produce spiritual fruit. One way that will allow God to transform us more into the image 
of Christ. So, as we gaze at the book of James, we are looking into a mirror. What are we going to see in that mirror? This is an introduction sermon, so there's some things I want to make sure we get on the table right here. But what I'm going to introduce to you this morning is not something that's just going to be there for one message and then you can remember it later on. All the four different ways I'm going to point out what is going on in James this morning, we will visit those every single time we come into a text. And I'll tell you what they are. We're going to meet the author, James himself. And we're going to learn about his concerns through his writing. We're also going to meet the people to whom James wrote. And we're going to learn quite a bit about them along the way. We're also going to see how James writes this letter. And this is not just an academic exercise. It's important to understand how he is communicating this letter so we can better understand it. And finally, we're going to take a look at James's big idea, his main concern, which will help us frame the exhortations of the letter under one goal. So this morning, my goal is to introduce to you all four of these observations. So let's start with this first one, the author of the letter of James. So who is the author? You say, well, that's kind of easy. I mean, it says James right here. But it might surprise you to know that the author did not go by the name James. He actually went by the, word, uh, by the name Jacob, or more specifically, Yakbus. That's his name. In fact, if you look it up in the Greek New Testament, that's who wrote it. It's, it's the guy named Jacob. But as languages morphed and changed, in, especially in English, the name Yakbus began to be pronounced Yamus or Yames, or as we say in English, James. We, we shorten it to one syllable. And eventually, that's how everybody knows this author. I, was, I, got, a, I got an email from somebody who said that there's a big... Uh, conspiracy theory to erase the, he believed in it too, that we were trying to erase the Jewishness away from the Bible by saying James instead of Jacob. And I'm like, I don't think that's really how it all went down. But nevertheless, uh, I'm going to say James and not Jacob. I could be all fancy, you know, and and say Jacob the whole time. I'll forget anyway. I'll say James half the time. So we're just going to call him James, okay? But the next question is, what James are we talking about? There's more than one James, more than one Yakbus, In the New Testament, there are two prominent Jameses that we need to pay attention to. The first one uh, that comes to mind is James, the son of Zebedee, the brother of John, one of the apostles of Jesus Christ. But James, the apostle, was killed by Herod with a spear in AD 44. And the letter probably, even though it's very early, it was probably not written quite that early. So besides that, the James in the letter doesn't call himself an apostle. So without going into, more, uh, into any more detail, uh, which is not really necessary for our purposes, it seems that most likely the author of the letter of James is the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus, one of Mary's sons after Jesus was born. What do we know about this James in the New Testament? Well, we know that he had at least seven siblings, maybe more, Because in Matthew 13, the people of his hometown were baffled by Jesus returning and teaching in the synagogue with such authority and wisdom as if he were sent by God or something. And and they were like, isn't this just the boy Jesus? I mean, he's brother of James and Joseph and Simon and Judas. Those are the names of his brothers. 
And all his sisters, I feel sorry for the sisters in the Bible. They never get named hardly at all. You know, the brothers get named because it's a patrilineal society. It's about the father's bloodline, you know. So, so we got the names of, of, of the boys, but then it says all his sisters. Now, does he mean all his two sisters? Probably not. There's probably at least three of them, but likely more. And so he says, where all the people were saying, where did this man get all these things? In other words, who does he think he is? He has a Messiah complex, they thought. So verse 58, this will be funny. Verse 58 says <laughs> that Jesus did not do many works there because of their unbelief. And guess what? It's not just the surrounding town people who did not believe. Jesus' brothers were complicit in that belief. Uh, unbelief. And we know that because of John 7. I'm not going to take time to look at the context of John 7, but we have the statement, even his brothers did not believe in him. It wasn't just the people of Nazareth, Nazareth who didn't think he was the son of God. But something changed that. Because Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, while listing all of the different people that Jesus appeared to after his resurrection, Paul says that Jesus appeared to James. And he's not listed with the disciples. So this is James, his brother. He made a point to appear to James. And what a shock that must have been. And James becomes a believer in the Messiah, humanly speaking, his physical half-brother. And later, James becomes one of the leading elders, if not the leading elder or the pastor of the Jerusalem church, the first big church that was established. We know that because James has the last word in Acts 15 when all the apostles and the elders are gathered together to discuss Gentile inclusion in the church. It's James' idea that everybody goes with. Now, that's a pretty big deal when you think about it. I mean, if you're a member of the Church of Jerusalem at that time and people start coming in from other places to visit and they start sort of bragging about their church, like how much it's growing and how good their pastor is, somebody could say, well, you know, did I ever mention that, you know, my pastor actually grew up with Jesus? Uh, you know, like they, they had the same mom and everything. I mean, that would put him right, uh, silence things right down there. And, and so, you know, James had every right to think much of himself and sort of to push his weight around that his brother, Jesus, built through his death and resurrection the very church that he's pastoring, but he didn't. When James begins his letter, it is with utmost humility. He simply says, James, a servant, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's profound humility. So it is with great humility and pastoral care and concern that James writes this letter, and we will see this care of an elder as we make our way through the letter. So the mirror of the letter of James will reveal something to us about the author. It will also reveal something to us about the audience of the letter, those who originally received it. Who are those people who who received the letter. Well, again, James 1.1 1, 1 says they are, they are the 12 tribes in the dispersion. A lot of us memorize the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. This is a reference to the 12 tribes of Israel. In other words, the Jewish people. 
The dispersion refers to the fact that the Jews were spread all over the ancient world. In fact, the reason that they are to this day called Jews and not Israelites, have you ever wondered that? They began to be called Jews after the destruction of the first temple back in uh, you know, 6th century BC because they lost their homeland and they began to be referred over the centuries according to their ethnicity rather than to their homeland. And the Jews have been scattered all over the world. In fact, today, a majority of the Jews, it's a very slim majority, it's 51% according to statistics, of all the, all the Jews in the world, they live in the United States. Uh, 30% of them live in the land of Israel. The rest of them are scattered in little percentages all over the world. And so there's still the 12 tribes who are scattered abroad. But James is not writing to random Jews who are spread all over the world for various reasons. He's writing to believing Jews who were scattered because of the, pure, the persecution of their faith in their Messiah. Jesus Christ, after Stephen was stoned at the end of Acts chapter 7, becoming the first Christian martyr, Luke tells us in chapter 8 that there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. God used that persecution to spread the gospel. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul, who we just meet at the end of Acts 7, who later will become Paul, who will take the gospel of the Gentiles, Saul was ravaging the church at this time and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And the persecution continued. Saul was hunting Christians as far away as Damascus. When we get to Acts chapter 11, verse 19, we learn that the persecution that came after Stephen drove the believers northward and westward as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. And two observations that we have to make right away. First, the recipients of this letter are a persecuted bunch. They've had to flee their homes. Imagine if you suddenly had to just take what you could and go away because you were going to be killed and your family was going to be killed. That's what they had gone through. And they were going through the earth as those who were pilgrims on a journey, trying to find a place to be, as strangers and aliens. So we're not surprised that the first thing James says to these believers scattered abroad in the letter is, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet with trials of various kinds. They knew trials. The second observation is that these believers are Jewish. This is going to be really important when we look at this letter and try to discern what James is saying to the original audience. There are no Gentile believers that we can discern at this point in the church, nobody to speak of. There are no Gentiles. Maybe Cornelius, by the time James is written, he was a Gentile, God-fearing Gentile, saved at the, Acts, at the end of Acts 10. But at this point, he's an anomaly. Gentile inclusion in the gospel has not yet caught on and spread. For all practical purposes, this is a Jewish church. They are God's chosen people who did embrace Jesus as their Messiah. In fact, you notice in Acts chapter 11, verse 19 here, that even at this point in Acts 11, those who were scattered over the empire were preaching the gospel to no one except Jews only. 
And this is more than a decade after Jesus' death and resurrection. That is why the letter of James is intensely Jewish. It is very early. You will see throughout this letter this, examples of this again and again. I'll give you one example right now. When James mentions the church in, in the church gathering together in verse 2, he actually uses the word to gather together as a synagogue. The Jews are still meeting in their synagogues throughout the empire. Remember when, when Paul would go to a town, the first thing he'd do is go to the synagogue and start reasoning with the Jews. They were welcome because they were Jews. That was their, the center of their community. And James assumes that they're still gathering in synagogues. They haven't been excommunicated yet from those. So these are Jewish believers only who have been scattered throughout the empire because of persecution. And this is important for us to know because it's going to help us understand better what James is saying to his original audience so that we can discern the meaning of the text in its context and that will help us to apply it accurately to our hearts and lives today. There's another observation that we need to make in the letter of James as we gaze intently at it, and that is the form of the writing that James uses. And this might not seem like a big deal to you right now, but it will come up again and again. You will see that this is not a typical letter like Peter or Paul wrote in the New Testament. First, it has the most basic standard greeting of any letter of the New Testament. Ancient Greco-Roman uh, letters would always start with name of sender, name of receiver, and then karain, which means greetings. That's how they would begin any letter. And they didn't spare a lot of words. But normally you'd have sender, receiver, greeting. You see that in Paul's letters too. You see it in Peter's letter as well. But it's very simple here. This is basically all you would have to do to begin the letter. And so James says, James, servant of God, and Lord Jesus Christ, there's the sender. To the 12 tribes in the dispersion, there's the receiver. Greetings. Now, later, the apostle Paul would transform Christian letter writing. He would take the word karain, that's here, greetings, and turn it into charis, which means grace. And he would add the Jewish shalom, which in Greek is erine. And so when Paul writes a letter, he's often saying, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to whoever he's writing to, grace and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul transforms the standard greeting into a Christianized greeting. It's a wonderful thing to see because that wasn't done in the ancient world. Paul started it. But this is years before Paul. It's the first letter written in the New Testament probably the first writing of the New Testament itself. But even though James has this typical first century opening, he doesn't have a standard conclusion to his letter. Instead, he has an exhortation very abruptly written, perhaps with his own hand. He says, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. That's the end. Uh, uh, end of story. You know, mic dropped, everything's over. That's the way James ends. No God bless you, no signing off, no personal greeting. He ends with an exhortation. And that exhortation, by the way, I think is one of the keys that unlocks the main concern of the whole letter. We'll see that in just a few minutes. But there is one other important feature to James' form that is really important. You will notice as you read the letter that James jumps from idea to idea, from issue to issue. Sometimes he spends a little bit of time on the issue, maybe a verse. Sometimes he goes on for verses. 
about the issue and spends a lot of time on it. And to illustrate that, I want to just work through a little bit of chapter 1 here really quickly just to see what he says. In James 1, starting in verse 2, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet with trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So what's he talking about here? He's talking about, about trials. So we come to the next paragraph and we begin to read. And it says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all and without reproach, and it will be given him. And we think, well, he must be talking about trials still, right? And asking for wisdom about trials because that's what he's been talking about. We're, we're, we're taught when we read a letter in the New Testament that the, the author goes on and he goes from thought to thought and there's a logical connection. But that's not what you have in James necessarily. Is he talking about trials still here? Well, we know that he continues to talk about seeking God in prayer, because the next verse continues to connect with that, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. But then he comes to verse 9 and he says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Now, where did this come from? This is the poor and the rich, social status. He doesn't seem to be talking about trials or prayer anymore. But then we come to verse 12 and what do we see here? Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Now he's back talking about trials again. When he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Now, you can approach this one of two ways. Some interpreters actually try to hold this whole section together as if, Paul, as if James, I'm going to say Paul a hundred times, I just know it. Do you know, just remember, I'm talking about James, okay? As, as, if, as if James uh, you know, is, is, is really talking about one thing here from verse 2 to verse 12 because you have the word trial mentioned both times. And, and normally in, in a letter, you, you, would, you would use that kind of logic to, to look at you know, what the, the theme of the, of the paragraph is. But the other way to take this is that if he's moving from topic to topic, issue to issue, back and forth, verses 2 through 12 don't necessarily have to have one subject. You can have four subjects, and he can talk about something and then come back to it. He does it all the way through the letter. That's what I think is going on here. I think he's moving in rapid succession with virtually no transition from topic to topic. Now, that should remind you of something it should at least remind you of the book of Proverbs, right? Think about your reading in Proverbs. James is not inventing the way he writes. James is writing the way other literature reads that he has grown up with and that he's very familiar with. And you know what Proverbs do if you're a reader of Proverbs. I hope you are. Proverbs goes from message to message, and sometimes there's no break, there's no transition. It's one thought and then another thought. And sometimes the verses come together and sometimes they don't. Sometimes they're like pearls on a string. And you have to go from one topic to another. Not only that, but the theme of Proverbs is wisdom. 
And we will find that same theme in the letter of James as we begin to read. In fact, we just saw that in verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom. So a lot of connection between James and Proverbs. And we'll get a closer look at that as we go on. But we also need to consider that there's other literature that James probably read when he was a boy and taught growing up in the yeshiva, the school. I'm thinking, for instance, of a writing that maybe some of you have read, The Wisdom of Ben Sira. Uh, ben Sira is a long collection of wisdom literature that would remind you of Proverbs if you read it, and it was written about a couple of hundred years before Jesus was born. And it was a famous writing among the Jews. Jewish children would grow up reading the words of Ben Sira. And in fact, uh, Jesus and his brother Judas, Jude, the author of, of the little letter at the end of the, the scriptures, and, and, uh, and Yaakov or James probably read through Ben Sira and were taught by the rabbis in the yeshiva from this writing. And there's other writings they, they probably read too. In fact, you know, you know that Jude quotes from some of them actually in his letter. And you could read Ben Sira anytime you want to. It's, a, it's in a collection that we know as the Apocrypha. Now, Christians get really skittish about the Apocrypha. They're, oh, no, no, that's, that's a terrible thing, you know? You know, get away from me. Don't, don't read that kind of thing. Like, like if you read something from the Apocrypha, you're going to the dark side or something. Um, but most of the Apocrypha are writings that were required reading for any educated Jewish boy growing up in the first century. Who wouldn't want to read the literature that Jesus and his brothers no doubt read while they were growing up? And I cannot begin to tell you the ways that knowing the literature they were growing up with opens up the way the New Testament is shaped for us. In this case, knowing that James looks so much like the wisdom of Proverbs and actually so much like the wisdom of Ben Sirah helps us see that James is also writing wisdom literature. He's telling his audience not to go down this path. You'll see this in a minute but to go down this path and said, you think this way, he's going to say. You say this, but really it's this. That's exactly what Proverbs does. My watch just said, I'm not sure I understand. I hope that, uh, I hope that you're not saying that. What in the world? Okay, so, but this is, this is what we get when we read uh, the book of James. And, and this observation, like I said, it might not seem very specific to you. It doesn't seem like a big spiritual point right now, but you will see this again and again. I'm not leaving these things behind. They will help us work through this text of Scripture. There's one more observation that is closer to our understanding of the letter, and that is, of course, the message of James. Let's talk about the message for just a minute as we close. I, I read the letter of James a lot of times trying to work out how to capture the essence of what James is saying. Because you can't just read the first chapter and say, here's my sermon title, here's the series title, and then by the time you're in chapter two, you're like, oh, I mean, that's not a really good title. Because you, you want everything to be subsumed out of, under, under a particular idea. It's, it's really helpful when you're working through a book like that. And I read various authors on the subject. I wanted to find out what are the, what are the best commentators think the theme is of James. But I seized upon a sentence that James Adamson writes in a technical commentary that he published back in 1976. And he says this, he says, James' task is mainly practical to help the sincere live up to their faith and very often to correct errors, misunderstandings, and backslidings resulting in 
conduct unworthy of the Christian faith. And I read that sentence after looking at a whole bunch of other works, after reading the letter for a long time, and I said, that's it. That captures exactly what James is doing in every chapter. James' message is live up to your faith. He says, you say you're a Christian. You say you're following Christ. Now live up to it. Think and act like you believe that way. Behave in the same way that is worthy of the name Christian. And he doesn't use the word Christian because that term doesn't come till later. But this is the kind of thing he's saying. There is an approach that James is taking in giving this admonition through the letter. And I said this earlier, the last two verses are the key that unlocks what James is saying throughout the entire letter. They're like the, the clarion cry at the end that goes back to the whole letter, these last two verses. This is how the letter ends. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, he's gone off the path, he's gone this way instead of that way. If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back to the path, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now, we're going to have to unpack that a little bit more in the coming days, but at the least, James is saying, there are those of you who have wandered from the truth. You're thinking things and doing things that are not right. They are not worthy of the name of Christ. And you need to stop thinking this way and start thinking that way. You need to stop living this way and start living that way. There are all kinds of examples of people who simply believe the wrong thing about life. And they pattern their life according to this false belief. They have a worldview, a perception of reality that impacts how they live. And it's simply not true. A short time ago, I began interested, became interested in people living in a world who believe, living in our world, and, and they believe that the earth is not round. The earth is flat. If you want to find out about this and all about the flat earthers, there's a lot of things you can look at on the World Wide Web and find out. Not during the sermon, but sometime after. You can find out. You can visit the Flat Earth Society online. Now, there are some members of the society who confess they are in it for the fun. I mean, they love the, the mental challenge of trying to defend a position that they don't really hold. <laughs> At least that's what they say. <laughs> but the majority of them are dead serious about this. They say that the earth is flat and scientifically they can prove it. Now, admittedly, most people could not prove empirically that the earth is round if you just ask them. I mean, think about it for a moment. How do you know, really? Except that you were told that the earth is round. And flat earthers have capitalized on this, and they've gotten a lot of people to follow them all over the world. People have not seen the roundness of the earth for themselves unless they've seen, uh, you know, the earth from the space far enough away to see the curvature of the earth. But my first thought was, well, don't people fly around the world all the time? I mean, how do they keep flying all around the world if the world is flat? I mean, they end up the same place they started. But then I saw the explanation 
for this. You see, flat earthers think that you're flying around the globe, but you're really just going in a circle. I mean, how would you know if there's really not a north and a south like we're told there is? So they're going in this circle, and anywhere in the world, if you had what, what people call south, they will run into Antarctica, and Antarctica just goes on and on indefinitely. There's different variations of what you believe here. Some say that goes on for like eternity, just Antarctica. Some say you can actually, you'll actually fall off uh, the flat earth if you go too far, but nobody can get to Antarctica. You know, they can't get across Antarctica, so nobody really knows. And there are all kinds of physical experiments that they do to try to prove the flatness of the earth. For example, they point out that if you sit on the edge of a merry-go-round on the playground, the centrifugal force will throw you off. So if the earth were really spinning, why doesn't everything just fly off into space? When it is pointed out to them that a true experiment on the merry-go-round would mean the merry-go-round would have to go one rotation in 24 hours okay, which would greatly reduce the centrifugal force, that doesn't seem to matter to them. They believe things like that gravity is an illusion, the NASA moon landing was a hoax, pictures from space showing uh, the curvature of the earth are photoshopped to make it look like the earth is round. And in fact, the members of the United Nations who are a bunch of Freemasons and Illuminati, ostensibly, okay, are the primary culprits keeping the secret from the rest of humanity that the earth is really flat. In fact, look at their logo. It's a flat earth. I'm not making this stuff up, by the way. It's a flat earth. And guess what you don't see? You don't see Antarctica, do you? Never mind the fact that Antarctica is not part of the UN, okay? And uh, never mind the fact that literally thousands and thousands of people have to be in on this hoax for it to work. People from NASA and the UN and all over the world. And so far, nobody has given away the secret. But there are people who really believe the flat earth theory and no one can dissuade them. They are processing their world as if one thing is true when it's just the opposite. Now we laugh at this. But this is the kind of situation that James is seeking to correct in the letter. Only it's not geological, it's theological. He's going to say, you're saying or believing one thing, but really the complete opposite is true. I mean, I start, let's just look at chapter one again really quickly through this. The, the, first, the first issue in the entire letter is about the misperception of trials. Have you ever had a misperception about why you're going through something that God puts you through? Have you ever thought wrongly about that? James says, trials shouldn't make us depressed. Trials should bring us joy. How is that possible? Is he right about that? The next issue is seeking God for wisdom while having doubt in your mind instead of pure faith. There's a way to ask God. Then James deals with faulty perception of poverty and riches, and it's a theme he'll bring up again and again in the letter. In James 1.12, then, he addresses the issue of perseverance in trials. He says, blessed is the man. You recognize that formula from the wisdom literature in the Old Testament. And in James 1.13, he addresses those who blame God for their temptation. Let no one say is a way of saying, you're not thinking rightly about this. You're thinking the wrong thing. You're in error. And then he says in verse 16, do not be deceived. He's using the word planao, which is our ancient word for planet. The ancient people did not know what a planet was per se, but they did know that there was a fixed star map in the sky and the stars all kept their relative position as the stars turned in the night sky. But there were particular lights, particular stars that ran a separate course. They went astray. 
And James says that bad thinking can lead you off the path. You think it's the right path, but it's not. You're deceived. It's the same word he uses at the end of the letter in 519 when he speaks to a, of a brother who wanders from the path. Actually, verse 16 of chapter 1 and verse 19 of chapter 5 connect that way as bookends, really, of the letter about deception. Again, in verse 19, he calls them to know the right perspective, this time on anger and sin. And then he comes to the portion we started with this morning where he's warning those who mistakenly think it's simply enough to hear the word but not do it. He says you're deceiving yourselves. That's a different word for deceive. That means you're fooling yourself. You're pulling the wool over your own eyes. And then he admonishes with respect to what real Christianity, true religion looks like. And notice his language. If anyone thinks this way, he's really deceiving his own heart. You see what James is doing then? He's not just giving practical advice. He's correcting error in his letter. He's saying, you're thinking wrongly about this. You're being deceived. Some of you are being led astray. And he goes on like this into the letter. He deals again and again with those who say something, with those who think something, but there's actually a different reality. Some false realities need adjustment of perspective in the Christian life. Other false realities indicate a deception so profound that it seems that the person deceived may not even be a believer. And here's one of them at the end of this chapter, a person who thinks he is religious and therefore God is going to accept him. But what comes out of his mouth, what comes out of his heart, what comes out of his actions betray a profound misunderstanding of the gospel. And we'll see the same thing again in chapter 2, where James says, how can you say you have faith with nothing to show for it? The demons believe God. What distinguishes you from them? And if you can't answer that question, if all you have is a demon-like level of faith, are you really saved? This is why James admonishes as the rallying cry at the climax of the letter that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death. So we need to get beyond the idea that James is this nice little Christian letter that is going to give us some great practical advice so that we can be on our merry way living the Christian life. I know we don't think of it that way, but I, you hear so often, oh, James is such a practical letter. I love James. It's not just a nice little letter. James is dealing with a real situation of believers who are misunderstanding the implications of the gospel that they claim to believe. And what I'm telling you this morning is that we need to be open to the possibility that the Lord is going to use this book in our lives to expose sin, to expose misunderstanding, to expose our own false view of reality as we gaze into the mirror of its teaching. And we need to be committed as a church body before we even know what we're going to learn, before we even know what the Lord will reveal to us, we need to be committed to him by saying yes to the Lord as a body of believers and endeavoring by his grace through the Spirit to change what he tells us to change. And that would accomplish James's purpose in this letter. So let's pray together and ask God to bless our time in this word and let's commit ourselves to doing exactly what James is pointing us to do in this letter. Father, we... Can...